Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. So good morning. As you are hopefully aware by now, this sermon series is all about taking Old Testament characters and looking at how they point us to Jesus. Um, the character or story that I'm going to look at today is something of a biblical anomaly. Like Neil says, it's a bit of an unusual story. It's the book of Esther. And it's a classic princess saves her people story, which I think really ought to start with once upon a time in a land far, far away. Um, that's not why it's unusual. It's unusual because the book of Esther doesn't actually mention the name of God, not once. Throughout the entire story, I combed it carefully and it doesn't. So it seems a bit odd at first glance that a book or a story more akin to a Disney script has a place in the Bible. Um, it just seems a bit strange. But when you read the story in the context of the New Testament and in the light of what, Je- what Jesus has done for us, then its purpose becomes a little clearer. Now, as I mentioned, this story is about salvation. It is someone saving someone. Um, but it could also be titled, God Has a Plan because that's exactly what it demonstrates. I'm going to tell a very paraphrased and very, very condensed version of the story this morning. Um, But if you want to read the full story for yourself, you can find it in the Bible. It's helpfully titled Esther. So it's easily found. It's really short, and it's also really, really good and well worth a read. Um, So Esther's story actually begins partway through a three-day banquet thrown by the king of Persia, a man called Xerxes. This is some years after Daniel's story. Now, Xerxes had provided the ancient version of an open bar for this men-only ultimate feast, which may possibly have influenced his actions, because he decides partway through to command his servants to summon his queen, Vashti, into the room because he wants to show off her beauty to his assembled guests. Now, Vashti, not surprisingly, says no. Can't think why she didn't want to walk into a room on her own of drunken men so they could ogle her, Um, (laughs) but she didn't, and Xerxes got mad. So Xerxes and his nobles then got together. They decided that they didn't want Vashti's disobedience to spread. They didn't want other women across Persia defying their husbands, so they needed to act fast. So they came up with a plan. They stripped Vashti of her title. She was no longer queen, and she was banished from the king's presence. Obviously, this created a vacuum, a little vacancy within the royal household. They had no queen. So the royal advisors came up with a cunning plan to fill the spot. They rounded up the prettiest girls they could find across Persia, brought them to the palace, dunked them in lots of baths, perfumed them thoroughly, and then brought them into the king's chambers one at a time. And he would, you know, pick his favorite. And Xerxes quite liked the idea. Can't think why. Um, (laughs) And so it it was done. The girls were brought in, brought before him. And Esther was one of these women. Now, Esther had no parents. She was brought up by her cousin, a man called Mordecai. They were both Jews. When she was taken to the palace, Mordecai commanded her. It seems like this is for her own safety. He commands her to keep her family background, that is her relationship to Mordecai, and also her Jewish heritage, a complete secret. So nobody knows. But Esther goes into the palace. She charms everyone she meets, including the king, because this is a princess story. And he crowns her queen in Vashti's place. And they all lived happily ever after. Mm, Not so much. See, at this point in the Disney film, the green smoke would come in because Haman has entered the room, and Haman is the baddie of the story. 
Haman is the king's most trusted advisor. And just recently, the king has issued an edict, a big law, saying that whenever Haman walks past, everybody must bow before him. And they do, because they are dutiful and obedient subjects. Everybody except one man. One man remains stubbornly upright every time Haman walked past. And so Haman's servants say to him, have you sinned that Mordecai the Jew is not bowing before you? Doesn't go down well, funnily enough. Haman gets really angry because he's a baddie. He goes home and he plots because that's what baddies do best. And his plot is he will take revenge on Mordecai. But the best way he thinks to take revenge on Mordecai is to destroy all the Jewish people because extreme motives, extreme reactions are the best um, weapon in the baddie's arsenal. So Haman goes to the king and says to him, there is a certain people living amongst your subjects who are different, and they follow different customs. And, and this is most important, they disobey the king's commands. Now, Haman clearly knew his audience here. King was not going to like people disobeying him, and he didn't. Haman then went on to say, the king should not have to tolerate these people. My advice is that they be destroyed. And the king agrees, and he hands Haman his signet ring, which is like his seal of authority, and says, go and write an edict, which is uh, like an unbreakable law, proclaiming that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all Jews across Persia will be massacred. And Haman and Xerxes think they've done a good job, settled down for a drink. This edict is written, signed, sealed, sent out, proclaimed across Persia, and the Jews are bewildered and they mourn. Now, Mordecai has just heard this, and in grief, he heads up to the palace gates, and he sits outside the palace gates and sends a message to Esther, urging her to go before the king and beg him to repeal this edict. Esther, however, is not so sure about this. See, she writes back, she tells Mordecai, there's a funny custom in the Persian palace. If you are not specifically summoned by the king and you go before him, instant death is a death sentence. Unless the king happens to be in a good mood or likes you and he extends a royal scepter to you and he pardons you. But Esther hasn't been summoned for about a month. So she's thinking she's probably not in his good books right now. So quite likely that she'll be for the chop if she goes in. So not really keen. Mordecai's response to this is really not sympathetic. It's actually quite scathing. He says, do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for just such a time as this. I don't know about you, but if I ever got a letter like that from my dad, I'd be trembling in my boots because no, don't want to do it. Um, (laughs) But that dressing down, it does the trick. Esther asks Mordecai and her fellow Jews to join her and her maidservants in three days of prayer and fasting, after which she will go before the king. And she finishes her message with, and if I perish, I perish. That sounds a bit of an over-exaggeration to our ears now, but in those days it was a massive deal to hope for lenience from a king who is known to act rashly when he's angered. I mean, just look at Vashti. And Esther is more than aware of the likely consequences of her actions. So the three days of prayer and fasting is completed. 
Esther gets ready, she goes before the king. And I imagine at the moment they knew her to be approaching his throne room, every Jew in Persia held their breath. And she goes in, and he looks up and he sees her. And oh, relief, he's pleased to see her, and he pardons her. Now, there's, there's more to this story. But ultimately, Esther and Mordecai, they make the king aware of Haman's plotting, and they come up with a plan that allows the Jews to defend themselves and destroy their enemies, because it's the Bible, there's plenty of destroying. Um, and Haman is hanged, and everyone else in the palace, as far as we know, lives happily ever after. Wonderful, lovely film, it would be. Um, but the story of Esther isn't actually just a nice story with a lovely ending. It's an illustration, it helps point us to Jesus. See, even though the name of God isn't actually mentioned explicitly in the book, there are signs everywhere that God is working behind the scenes to save, his, to save his people. He provides them with a savior at just the right moment, in just the right position and place to intervene on their behalf. I mean, who better to, intervene, to intercede with a king than his own wife? Now, there are many, many more miraculous moments hidden throughout this story, and if you want a good summary of them, I thoroughly recommend the Bible Project video on YouTube that is titled Esther. It's worth looking at. But how does this story fit into the Bible as a whole? Well, when I was thinking about that, I remembered a very popular, very well-known verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, these words were written by Jeremiah to the sort of the earlier captives in exile in Persia as a reminder that God would not let them perish, that they had not been abandoned. It was a message of hope at a point when they did feel abandoned. They felt like they'd been left. And one of the reasons this verse is so popular today is because of the hope it brings to us when we feel abandoned. It reminds us that God's plan is good and that he always keeps his word. And Jesus is an integral part of that plan. Another famous verse, John 3, 16 to 17, lays it out for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Yay! A God's, God's ultimate plan, you'll be glad to hear, has always been from our salvation. And every single story we read in the Old Testament, right from Genesis, reminds us of this. If you start looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, you'll be amazed at just how often he pops up. He is everywhere. And when Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin, he saved us from destruction, making it possible for us to truly live happily ever after. So the story of Esther is powerful. And that's not because it is about a woman. It's not because of her actions. Its power lies in the reminder that we can trust in God. At the point when Mordecai tells, tells Esther off, within his letter is a statement of faith. God will provide a savior. And we can say today, praise him, he has. Um, if the band would like to come up, while... I'm sort of officially finished, but I'm going to shove this, tack this bit on the end. Um, yesterday, while I was sort of ruminating on this, I had this verse pop into my head, and I thought it was actually a line from a song. It's, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. 
And when I looked it up, I realized it wasn't a song. It was actually from a psalm that I'd read a couple of days before. And it, it struck me. And I don't know, it, it might be something that some people are struggling with. You can become sort of inured to the story of salvation over time. And I think God wants to restore our joy in our salvation today. Neil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.